All right, so we're going to have a short Devo on what we've just studied. And I think it's safe to assume you guys all know that this passage is about godly leaders, particularly within the church. And there needs to be a quick disclaimer made because in our passage, as you've seen, Paul will address elders specifically, the official leaders of the church. And I think the temptation for us is just to dismiss this, to check out. You know, you might think to yourself, well, I'm not an elder, so what Paul writes has no relevance for me. Or we might assume since Paul is addressing men, this passage has no relevance for the females. And while Paul does speak to male leaders in the church, there is much we can all glean and be challenged by in this text. We can extract principles to apply. Because truth be told, we all exercise a level of authority. We're all leaders in one sense of the word, maybe with a sibling, a younger sibling, or a coworker, or just as a mature believer discipling someone younger in the faith. So the context for our leadership may be varied and different, but not necessarily the content. So instead of tuning Paul out, here are two questions to be rehearsing as we work through this passage, as we navigate through these verses. One, how can I encourage the leaders in my life, especially church leaders, to excel in the ways that Paul has prescribed and outlined in this passage? And two, how can I grow in my leadership roles to better reflect the kind of leadership Paul commends here? And to do that, we're going to uh, work through our passage um, around three points. First, the case for godly leaders. The case for godly leaders. Look at verse 5. Paul writes, uh, right after his opening, he says, This is why I left you, Titus, in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So if we read between the lines, we can kind of gather some information. We understand that Paul and Titus had previously ministered in Crete, an island in the Mediterranean Ocean. And for reasons undisclosed, Paul had to continue on, so he left Titus behind. And we find out why. There's a pronoun, this, pointing a finger to the so that, right? So you can see the connection, the purpose clause, revealing why Paul is writing to Titus. This is why I left you in Crete, so that, here it is, two reasons. One, you might put what remained into order, and two, to appoint elders in every town. Now, if something needs to be put into order, it's safe to assume things are currently what? Out of order. That the churches in Crete are, in some way, incomplete. And so sure, organic bluegrass ministry may be exciting, may be good. But at some point, if you want to support and sustain growth for the long haul, you're going to need structure, organization to provide stability. And Paul wants to establish a solid foundation for these young churches. Now how? He says by appointing elders, by installing godly leaders who will steer these small congregations away from ungodliness and toward Jesus Christ. And notice Titus is, to, is told to appoint elders, plural. 
and checks and balances to ensure no individual abuses power, but also to wield a diversity of skills and insights to shepherd the church. There is safety and wisdom when authority is shared. Put simply, Titus is in charge of putting others in charge. Now, right out the gates, Paul's solution for bringing these underdeveloped churches up to speed is to appoint godly leaders. It's the very first thing the apostle addresses because it is just that important. You get the leaders on the right track, you get the followers as well. And it may be a bit simplistic, but a large part of a healthy church is owing to a healthy leadership. You know, many of us can evaluate, even like or dislike a church by the musicianship of a praise team, the number of programs offered, or the production of the Sunday service. And those parts can be important for consideration. But for Paul, the apostle, godly leadership is at the top of the list. And it should be for us as well. Whether you stay here at Lighthouse or end up committing to another church, one crucial factor to consider is do they have godly leadership? And if they don't, are they moving in that direction? Now, how do we ascertain this? What is the measure for godly leaders? Well, we now examine the character of godly leaders. The character of godly leaders beginning in verse 6. Paul now begins to describe such a qualified candidate. He says, if anyone is above reproach, if anyone is above reproach, let's just pause there. Above reproach or to be blameless is not to say that an individual is only qualified if they are perfect, if they are sinless. That would go against the context of the Bible, the rest of what scripture teaches. So the issue we can be confident about is not over the presence of sin, but it's persistence. Would you be shocked to hear of some scandal in this person's life, or would you kind of shrug your shoulders? Well, I'm not too surprised. You see, what Paul is after is not perfection, but will this man, will this elder, will this godly person be a model of godliness that others can pattern their lives after? In other words, in layman terms, if someone were to ask you, what does a Christian look like? you could confidently point to this individual and say, just spend 24 hours with him. Which is why Paul takes us to the most intimate of settings. The hardest place to hide who you are is in private, in the family household. Verse 6 continues, this person who is to be above reproach is to be the husband of one wife. Literally, is he a one woman man? Now, this doesn't mean marriage is a prerequisite to being an elder, a leader in the church. We know this because of the context, of the focus of our entire passage, that it's upon the character of these leaders, not their circumstances. The Apostle Paul is much more concerned with the person's integrity. If married, are they known for their marital fidelity? Their sexual purity? Is there consistency? Does this man demonstrate a care and commitment to his wife that is in line with Christ, his care and commitment to his bride, the church? 
Next up, Paul has us inspect the man's relationship to his children. Now, if you're using the ESV or a few other versions, your text might read, his children are believers. And it was my bad. I didn't include the footnote in uh, your text, so I led you astray. But if you, are, if you do possess an ESV in your hand, or if you're using other versions, sometimes you'll note that there's a, or you'll notice that there's a footnote that suggests an alternative translation, that instead of his children are believers, it could be interpreted as his children are faithful. And maybe this is something that you guys deliberated over in the interpretive phase of the Bible study portion. What is Paul getting at? Does this mean saved and Christian children, or is it faithful children who are obedient, respectful, submissive to their parents? Well, context, again, helps us. Paul's emphasis has not been on matters outside of the person's control. We know salvation is a gift, a gift from God. But there's another hint in this verse that suggests what Paul is referring to is faithfulness. All you have to do is read on. Look at what follows. Paul qualifies what he means by contrasting, right? He says, not open to not, not, he doesn't say not open to unbelief, but he says not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. And so do you see the parallel or the, the, the comparison there? Instead of flagrant rebellion, the child is faithful in obeying, respecting, submitting to the father's authority. Now we need to move uh, on. Paul explains why he has drawn so much attention to family dynamics. He says in verse 7, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. Paul uses the words elders and overseers pretty much interchangeably. You can see this in other passages like Acts 20. But the nuance here is that overseer carries this connotation of a steward, of managing, overseeing, say, a house that belongs to another. Which is why Paul had talked about family relations. Because before an elder can oversee God's house, the church, he needs to have a proven track record in his own home. Paul transitions from private life, then, to the public arena. He says, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. How can we measure this in the public form? He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. Now, obviously, we don't have the time to conduct an exhaustive word study on each of these. But the leader is to be above reproach, which is repeated for the second time. Meaning this person shouldn't have the reputation of being arrogant at work, quick-tempered on the sports field, or a drunk drunkard at the party. Yet we know it's not enough to eliminate those who are unqualified and unfit. After all, Paul's intention is for godly leaders to be installed, to be appointed, to lead to be exemplary and worthy of imitation. Someone who will put flesh and bones to the qualities then listed in verse 8. Instead, what is this elder supposed to be like? He's supposed to be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. If you really think about it, these traits make up a lot of ministry, of what it means to serve. And just to spotlight one, hospitality. 
I mean, you think about hospitality. Hospitality is where life is shared. It's the environment where the gospel can take root. You know, some of you came to faith when you heard the good news preached at church or at retreat, and praise God for that. But I know others of you came to trust in Christ over a meal when a friend welcomed you into their home and told you about Jesus. And a godly leader should be on the front lines of this effort, as well as these other qualities, redeeming everything for the cause of Christ. And while I can't go into depth for each trait, I don't want you to miss the bigger picture here. What we should take away is that for Paul, character, character is prioritized over competency. Character is prioritized over competency. You know, when you envision the ideal candidate to lead a church, what pops into your mind? You know, maybe you think of a person who's a visionary, someone with an entrepreneurial bent to push the envelope and be a catalyst for church growth. Or you think of a clear communicator, someone with maybe a charismatic personality to really draw the crowds and be able to engage them. And don't get me wrong, these giftings can be advantageous, but they are not essential. And here I'm speaking to myself, breathing inside relief, because frankly, I suck in a lot of these areas. But before I or anyone else eases up, the qualification for leadership are actually much greater than what talents you can bring to the table. Competency deals with what you can do. But listen, character is who you are. Character is who you are. And this ought to be sobering. This produces a lot of gravity for all of us in leadership positions and for all of us regardless. Because notice, there is nothing particularly distinct about these qualities. Nothing exclusive to those who are in or aspire for Christian leadership. In fact, what's remarkable about these attributes is how unremarkable they are. They are to be coming in all Christians. And an elder is someone who, at the very least, is simply one step ahead, leading the charge. Finally, we'll look uh, quickly at the conviction of godly leaders, the conviction of godly leaders. So Paul concentrates on the character of godly leadership, but there is one conviction every elder must have. Verse 9. He must, right, that's strong language. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. See, this is ground zero. This is home-based, fundamental to Christian leadership and Christians alike. That godly leaders cling to the trustworthy word because it contains truth from a God who never lies. And did you observe those two little words after? As taught. As taught. That a leader, we discover, is also a learner. While a leader is to teach, he never graduates from being a student of the word, pouring himself over the scriptures because such a conviction is intended to produce Two clear results. It's right there in the text. So that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So there's a positive effect as well as a protective one. 
And this is really the only job description Paul provides in this passage. John Calvin, commenting on these verses, has said, A pastor needs two voices, one for gathering the sheep and the other for driving away wolves and thieves. Now sure, Paul is commissioning, in particular, leaders to hold fast to this conviction. But I think the principle is fair game across the board for all of us. In a day and age where it's so easy to go with the flow, where even Christians are quick to comment on the latest political ruling, controversy, or current event in society, sometimes I genuinely wonder how much of this is done with the same goal that Paul has in mind. Do we as believers take seriously our responsibility to hold fast to the word, to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it? Or are we more interested in virtue signaling or parodying our favorite celebrity or politician? Does our counsel and admonition with one another sound more like pop psychology and the stuff of personality tests and fortune cookies? Or is it sound? Is it robust? Is it filled with truth? Because it comes straight from Scripture. Do you hold firmly to the trustworthy word? Or is your grip flimsy because you're clinging to so many other things? Practice, study the word, and then lead and be led by those who also do. One of the most apparent distinctives for Christians, leaders or not, is the supremacy and sufficiency of the word of God. That this will shape everything from who we esteem as capable for leadership and where we're supposed to head as leaders in the church and as followers of Christ. So from the very get-go, Paul has gone to great lengths to set before us what we should look for in godly leaders and who we should aspire to imitate and to be like. And it's so appropriate for our fellowship group. Praxis is the training ground. As cliche as it might sound, you are the future leaders, the future elders, praise team leaders, setup crew, small group facilitators, manager in your workplace, determined today to grow in godly character and an unwavering commitment to God and his word. Let's pray.